Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. And we're back again. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, Paul, I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. Very different setting than usual here. We're actually for once in the same room, which is unusual, but also very inspiring. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're actually recording this during the middle of our annual founders retreat and just finished a fascinating talk with our speaker. Yeah, that was absolutely stunning. I loved every minute of it. So I cannot wait for that. So let's get into it. Who do we have and what are we going to talk about? So look, we're going to be talking about product, but we're going to be talking about it in a much bigger sense. We know that best tech companies put product quality and innovation at the heart of their business and you know in the in the first episode of this series we heard from Jonathan Gale and he really surprised me so this is a, a sales leader by background then turned CEO who pointed everything in the success that he'd had in growing big businesses back to product quality and that kind of really kind of struck a chord with me and I think what we've got the opportunity here today is to really kind of dig down into not just product strategy, but what does it mean to innovate and how do companies innovate at scale? And, you know, when we think about the very best technology companies on the planet, the likes of Facebook or Google or Amazon or Netflix, Netflix, <laughs> these people really know how to innovate. And so I'm delighted today that we're joined by Gib Biddle. Gib was the VP of product at Netflix and also the chief product officer at Chegg. And now one of the most highly valued, and also I think it's fair to say well-traveled speakers on product <laughs> strategy on the, pro on the planet today. And, and Gib was just smiling to himself there. Gib, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot, Stephen, for having me. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here at Thanks. the Swank. Where are we? Coworth. Coworth Park. Coworth Park. In Ascot, Cab overlooking the fields. So Gib, look, we're just gonna jump straight into it. When it comes to innovation, we talked about those brand names. What is it that sets those very best tech companies apart from the rest? I'm guessing, but for me, it's some sort of magical combination of consumer insight, or sometimes I call it consumer science, the ability to learn through experimentation, strategy, being clear about what you're building and why. And then the third thing is creating a culture, which nicely helps attract highly talented people to do their jobs without too much process or rules. So if you can combine those three things together and have like something that gives you focus, often that's a mission and people feel they're working on hard problems with really bright peers, then lots of good magical things happen. You've just done a really interesting talk for our CEOs and, and uh, you know, we're about half an hour later recording this because there were so many people wanted to talk to you after the session. And you were describing the, the innovation, the culture that Netflix has created that allows them to think really big. But also, and you talked about giving people permission to make decisions and, and, and make mistakes to a, to a certain extent. I'm wondering how that really applies to product leaders as such when we're talking about the kind of the, these technology companies? Sure. Well, product leaders, at the benefit of culture is it helps people to make great decisions without talking with each other. If people really understand what's valued in a company, the behaviors, the skills, the principles, then they can make great decisions about people, about product, about the business on their own. 
The opposite of that is when companies get big, they get complex, they try to do way too much, they're unfocused, they hire lots of people, and then these, quote, rules and processes come into play. And the challenge with rules and processes is they're no fun for really bright, talented folks. People don't like that. And the second is you can't create rules for everything. You know, in the case of Netflix, Netflix went from a DVD by mail company to a, a streaming company to an international company. Now they're a leader in original content. You know, it's almost as though you need four different rule books. At Netflix, there's a different idea. Which, what if you create a culture that gives folks essentially freedom and responsibility that has a minimum of rules but is super clear about what's valued and what's not? What are the skills and behaviors that let people work together effectively? And that's what the Netflix culture or the Netflix culture deck is all about. So, give how and when and why did you decide that having a, a culture was a really good idea? I came to Electronic Arts in Silicon Valley in 1991. It was still a relatively young startup. And I was surprised and impressed that they, they were able to define what their culture was about. I remember it because it spelled something, A-C-T-I-O-N, action. But I, I saw the focus by the exec team there on that. And then I began to realize that if you were thoughtful about it, you could make you know, these great decisions without talking to each other. So, for instance, one of those values was uh, now. So there's a high sense of urgency. Uh, and I, I was like in my first week of work, and I asked somebody to do something, and they looked at me and they said, clink. I'm like, clink? What the, what the heck does that mean? And then they told me this sort of habit at Netflix. When you put, in the old days, like 60 cents in a Coke machine, you'd hear this clink that said to you, if and when you hit the button, the Coke's going to come out. So clink was this way of saying, I got it, and I'm going to handle the issue with urgency. And then as I slowly sort of walked up, became a, a leader over time, director, VP, that kind of stuff, I started to think about culture more because for me, building product is this interesting combination of chaos. You know, we're involved in, in invention, and it's messy and dirty, and discipline. And the discipline for me is often strategy. That brings the discipline to the chaos. But there's lots of experimentation. And then the culture for me was sort of the third you know, stool, third leg of the stool, where it, it talked a lot about what to value and not and how to be effective in working with other humans. And working with humans is sometimes complex. And we, often. We often don't understand each other. <laughs> and unfortunately, or fortunately, as companies get bigger, there are more humans. Don't get me wrong. I, I love humans. <laughs> but uh, culture is super helpful in expressing how people can be effective when working together. So the culture describes how we're going to behave and how we can make good decisions. I, I love the, um, the, the comparison of chaos and discipline. discipline. But I also love what you said earlier in your talk, which is, Culture is how you behave when no one's looking. Correct. I found that a fantastic definition of culture. Yeah. And that, I mean, for instance, for today, and you have a room full of co-founders, what it really means is saying to the co-founders, culture is, is what you do yeah, when no really. one's looking. <laughs> yeah. And that's quite true. So tell us about the discipline bit, which is the, the strategy of how yeah. you get things done. Yeah. So we're all, as product leaders, we're all trying to invent the future, and that's, that's hard. Of course, I'm a teacher now, and I do a lot of teaching outside the classroom. And because of that, I have lots of tools and models and frameworks. So one of them, you know, the way I define the job of a product leader is to delight customer and hard to copy. 
margin-enhancing ways. And that sort of forms the framework for how I think about product strategy. So think of all the theories and hypotheses about how you can delight your customer, but do it in a way that, that other folks won't immediately copy you. And then do it in a way that supports the business because you're, you're trying to make money largely so you can build a better product in the future to delight your customers even more. So that's sort of the foundation of strategy. For me, if a product leader is owning a whole product organization or a squad or a pod or a swim lane, you know, a smaller team within the organization, it doesn't matter. With either, I, I'm hoping that they'll be articulate about what their product strategy is. And they pair that nicely with metrics that help evaluate whether their theory, their hypothesis, their product strategy is correct or not. And then they can also tell me what are the tactics or projects against that, those strategies. So that's the discipline for me of strategy. But at the end of the day, I allow that this is still a creative, chaotic process. You're not going to get it right all the time. So, for instance, at Netflix, you know, there were eight high-level theories and hypotheses in 2005, and by 2010, we had proved that only three of them were, were valid. And luckily, they were super important, but it was all about fast-paced experimentation and getting the cadence up and learning both from the success and failure, because every time you, you do an experiment, you, you develop better judgment. One of the things that's resonated really well with our portfolio is this concept of the the quarterly product board as a way of guiding strategy and execution. Can you just kind of describe that in a little bit of detail for us? Sure. So largely, I focus my time on writing talks and workshops. And the writing, the first thing I ever wrote on Medium was how to run your quarterly product strategy meeting. I've since learned that starting anything with how-to is a really good thing because <laughs> uh, you're trying to be helpful. So the way that that meeting works you know, I started experimenting with it in different companies, but certainly that article brings it to life in the context of Netflix. The short version is the day before all the product leaders are articulating their strategies, their metrics, and their tactics, these projects, those theories and hypotheses. And they are sharing the results and learnings. They're sharing these future hypotheses. And we're doing it in an environment that where it's okay to debate and it's okay to ask questions and it's okay because that's how we all learn. And so I do think of those quarterly product strategy meetings as essentially a, you know, I call them a board meeting for product, which is to say it's important. Um, some little tricks, don't get too many people in the room. You know, once you get more than 15 or so, it becomes sort of a, you know, presentation yeah. parade, which stinks. And how do you limit the people? You don't need every function. You don't have to have marketing peeps there. You don't have to have all your technology partners. Just you know, be judicious about who are the people that you want in the room. And at the end of the day, you're trying to answer the question, what should we invest in and why? How much are we going to invest in each of these swim lanes? And then spend a little time thinking about the long term because the long term gets lost in the shuffle of day-to-day -day living. And the cool thing about the long term is if you can get people to embrace it and think long and hard about it, you can begin to create this mentality where in the long term, anything is possible. So if you give yourself the license to think three or five years from now, neat things can happen. And as an example, who would have thunk that a DVD by mail company that was started in 1998 called Netflix could be a leader today in sort of its fourth generation as a company of original content? 
the Emmys just happened in the States, and HBO had the most Emmys with 32, but there's Netflix at 27, the number two. And the Emmys is a way of evaluating the creative content of the storytellers, of the TV and the movie creations from each of those companies. And that's just mind-boggling. So, you know, if you give yourself license to think out 20 years, of course Netflix could become a leader in storytelling, both in TVs and movies. That's really exciting. I remember, I think the very first time we met, you, you said something that really kind of resonated with me, which is look at Netflix and never underestimate what you can achieve in 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that's the, the topic we've been talking about mostly today with, yeah. with our portfolio companies. You know, we all hugely overestimate what we can achieve in 12 months, but we massively underestimate, don't we, what we can achieve in a decade or, or 20 years. Yes. So, again, all the teacher in me instantly wants to posit a tool, a model, or a framework. The one that I use a lot to encourage long-term thinking, I call it the GLEE model. It's the G, the L, and the E that are important. But if I'm working with a startup or a formed company or one that's evolved, I'm nicely trying to get them to think in waves. So if I share the model for Netflix, the idea was to get big on DVDs. That happened. Then to lead the next wave of the company's life, and that's to lead streaming. And then the third chapter, and this played out over 10 or 15 years, was to expand internationally once the company was a digital company. It would have been crazy to expand the DVD by mail system throughout the world because postal systems are so crazily different. However, Netflix did almost launch in the UK. <laughs> that was a mistake. Um, but if you take that model of get big on DVD, lead streaming, expand international, Netflix is very much in, the, in their fourth wave, which is all about original content, which is pretty cool. And then think out under five or 10 years, what's the next wave going to be for Netflix my theory is it's probably about how tools and technology will change storytelling. It's going to be about interactive storytelling or about what VR and 3D can do for storytelling. A little hint of it is one of the Emmys that Netflix won was for Black Mirror Bandersnatch, Bandersnatch yeah. which is uh, basically an interactive story. Yeah. So it certainly was recognized by the creative community, and, and we'll see. Paul, do you like it? Yeah, I liked it. You like actually. it? Yeah. Okay. Do you love it, it or it like it? I cannot say I loved it. Okay, yeah. That, well, that's how it But I loved start. the fact that I had to play with it and start and try to yeah. find all the different endings that's and right. chapters. Yeah. I liked it. That one was that interesting because the, the first experiment was like Puss in Boots <laughs> with kids storytelling. But they're going to do Kimmy Schmidt, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. They're going to do an interactive version for her. Wow. So oh. they're clearly puttering and tuning and learning. And this is just one of the theories about where Netflix will go. Yeah, to your point, they're experimenting and they can experiment at scale, which is way cool, yeah. right? And that is probably one of the biggest characteristics of the most successful companies, that ability to innovate at scale. Well, it's funny. What's interesting to me is a lot of companies, as they get big, they lose the muscles that they had when they were a punk startup. The the muscle is about embracing risk. And many companies, as they get bigger, start playing it safe. And the successful long-term companies, they maintain the same risk tolerance they had as a punk startup as they get bigger. I think Netflix has done a great job of that. For instance, Facebook went public. They were a real company. And what did they do? They, they bought WhatsApp for like $18 billion. I mean, they were maintaining that same level of risk. 
which I, I deeply appreciate it when I see maturing companies embrace the risk. Because if you don't, you're not going to be one of those companies that last 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, my negative role model in all this is probably Yahoo. Yahoo got big on search, and then there wasn't really a next wave for them. And I'm sure that their tolerance for risk dropped off pretty quickly. Is it the people? Is it easy? I mean, you talk about culture. Is it yeah. easy to transfer that culture to someone new after so many years that would manage a company like Netflix? It's funny. Like, I, well, my model for product leaders is I'll nicely ask them if they are a starter, a builder. Sometimes I think of it as a super scaler. I don't really know the right language, but I'll explain the model. Starters love to, to take from scratch stuff and build something out of nothing. And that's a classic entrepreneur. I think of myself as a builder. I love looking for startups with a proof of concept that are ready to scale and then scaling them up. The super scalers are folks that don't have an allergic reaction to being in a very large company, which that's my problem. I, I have an allergic reaction when there's two or 3,000 people in the building. My guess is there aren't a lot of people that can be highly effective at those three phases. So you have to acknowledge and accept that you need different people with different skills and different behaviors at different junctures in, in your company's life. You can see that in, in Netflix. Sometimes I feel like Reed Hastings has had two or three teams. He's the CEO of Netflix over time. And certainly there have been huge shifts. Like if you were at Netflix in 2007 in Silicon Valley, the company deeply embraced engineers and technology. When by 2010, when it was critically important to get lots of great content, it was like the locus of activity shifted down to LA towards the content and the creative community down there. And you can see that in, if you look at the real estate. I mean, the building in Hollywood is gorgeous and there's a secret entrance. So Obama can park his car and walk under the street to get in, or wow. Dave Letterman, right? And, you know, by comparing contrast, the, the, the building in Los Gatos looks somewhat pedestrian, <laughs> right? But these are sort of external artifacts of what's going on at the company as they're navigating these huge shifts, in this case, from, you know, DVD by mail to streaming to original content, which is profound. And, yeah, there have been a lot of people that have come and go to help enable that at Netflix. And I'm sure you should see the same thing at Facebook or Amazon or any of those companies on your list, Stephen. Yeah. It's a fascinating kind of insight to the kind of the culture and the behaviors of some of the most successful companies on in the world. And, and they have that ability to maintain the risk appetite while leveling up the organization, but also keeping a clarity of the kind of the vision of where you're trying to go over a 5, 10, 15 year period. That's, yeah. a, that's a kind of a unique combination, isn't well, it? Well, it is. It, and then this is why none of this is easy. Like, well, you use the word vision. You know, I, I sometimes will use the phrase product vision to describe that those steps of glee, get big on DVD, lead streaming. Really, I'm just trying to help communicate the different stages of, of a company as the product leader. But uh, what's fascinating to me is often conversations come up around mission, right? And Netflix, we used to say the mission was to connect people with movies that they'll love. And that was important. Uh, we were trying to do personalization, get to know you, get to know your movie tastes, and then connect you with the movies that you love. But I would say that that mission wasn't that helpful 
because I think at the end of the day, Netflix is all about entertainment. And, and so everybody in the building understands that their job is to help entertain, which is, I think, is happening even with a, you know, a, a smart documentary that, that's trying to inform you or Paul Blart Mall Cop, which, you know, is there just to help you leave your brains at the door while you enjoy a, a dumb laugh on a Friday night because you had a hard work week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but those are the, the ends of the spectrum with entertainment. I get that, but what was hiding in there, I was just a little fascinated that the idea of mission wasn't that critical at Netflix. Whereas at Chegg, my next startup, it really was important. At the end of the day, we recognize that Chegg is a startup in Silicon Valley. They are doing textbook rental and increasingly homework help for students. And um, at the end of the day, we were trying to help students save time, save money, and get smarter. And that that helped define most of the work that we did. And that's much more of a mission-based company. And, and just that simple idea gave a lot of clarity to the direction. Any last questions you think? I mean, I'll just make a statement. The hard part about product leadership is combining the chaos, which is necessary for creative work, and marrying it with the discipline. And for me, that discipline is all about strategy and helping define what's important and, and the why. And then the third element that I've been thinking about today, as we are at the Swank, Coworth Park, I'm sure I butchered it, sorry. Um, the idea is that culture is something that helps unify all these humans in the building. It articulates the behaviors that you seek, the skills that you want, what you truly believe in. And those are the wonderful things that help humans work together wonderfully effectively. Because at the end of the day, it's hard to change the world with a small team. Eventually, you will find yourself working with a big team. And that's where I think that incredible combination of strategy, of culture. And then this idea, I usually call it consumer science. But how do you develop consumer insight? How do you truly understand what will resonate with your customers that will delight them in these hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways. So for me, the magic sort of troika or three legs of the stool are all about consumer science, culture, and strategy. And I think that's really important to help product leaders to do their jobs and to get out there and freaking dent the universe, which is the job. Get big over time and really help deliver on whatever the mission that you've chosen to embrace. So I, I, the other thing I chuckle about as I get older, I think I get increasingly youthfully optimistic. So don't we'll be see. old. Don't we'll see old. what happens. Hold later. on, hold on dearly to that. <laughs> exactly. uh, to, on um, that thought, Gib, always a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for taking the time out of a very busy schedule to yeah, thank you spend so the much. day with us. Good. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Goodbye. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview, along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcast. Thank you.